Hello, and welcome back to the Brutheology Podcast. This week, we'll have part two of our discussion with Dr. Celeste Rossmiller on Laudato Si. So please join us for the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to know more about Brutheology, you can find us at brutheology.org. You can find us at Brutheology on Facebook and Instagram, and at Brew underscore Theology on X, formerly known as Twitter. Please let us know if you have any questions, and I hope you enjoy the show. So as we move from the biblical ground, he then moves into the human roots of the ecological crisis. Would you like to kind of guide us through that? And his, I feel like after listening to you talk about this before, he very clearly places the cause of much, if not all of this on humans. And he doesn't waver on that. He's very plain about that. He definitely is plain about that, that he isn't just on a rant. He has an enormous amount of good things to say, too. So the human roots of the ecological crisis, at the beginning of every chapter, there's one paragraph that is sort of the introduction to the chapter. So let me just read that. It says, it would hardly be helpful to describe symptoms without acknowledging the human origins of the ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. A certain way of understanding human life and activity has gone awry to the serious detriment of the world around us. Should we not pause and consider this? At this stage, I propose that we focus on the dominant technocratic paradigm and the place of human beings and of human action in the world. And so let me just read you the segments of this chapter. There's three major segments, technology, creativity, and power. That's the first segment. The second one is the globalization of the technocratic paradigm. And the third section is called the crisis and effects of modern anthropocentrism with breaking that down into practical relativism, the need to protect employment, and new biological technologies. So under technology, creativity, and power, he says it is right to rejoice in the advances in digital revolution, modern medicine, information technology, airplanes, automobiles, electricity, the telegraph, railways, transportation, and so on, and nanotechnologies. It is right to rejoice in these advances and to be excited by the immense possibilities which they continue to open up before us, for science and technology are wonderful products of a God-given human creativity. The modification of nature for useful purposes has distinguished the human family from the beginning. Technology itself expresses the inner tensions that impels humanity gradually to overcome material limitations. And talks about some of the countless evils that have been remedied that used to harm and limit human beings. Yet, a couple paragraphs later, he says, yet it must also be recognized that nuclear energy, biotechnology, human information technology, knowledge of our DNA and many other abilities which we have acquired have given us tremendous power. More precisely, they have given those with the knowledge and especially the economic resources to use them, an impressive dominance over the whole of humanity and the entire world. 
Never has humanity had such power over itself, yet nothing ensures that it will be used wisely, particularly when we consider how it is currently being used. And he mentions nuclear bombs, the array of technology which Nazism, communism, and other totalitarian regimes have been have used to kill millions of people, to say nothing. I mean, obviously, nuclear bombs are on completely on our doorstep. But it's also interesting now here, eight years later than he wrote this in 2015, how you have the scientists who are developing AI, artificial intelligence, have started coming forward and saying, whoa, we need some moral guidelines here about where to say enough is enough. Similar to, parallel to, what the nuclear scientists said as they developed nuclear weapons. Oh my gosh, what have we done and what have we better do here to put some uh, limits, limitations on this? So, so he really gets into, he says, we are not completely autonomous beings. We belong in communities, concentric communities, from family to larger family to societies to nation states and so on that and to the earth itself to ecosystems and uh, bios and so on and so forth human beings are not completely autonomous our freedom fades when it is handed over to the blind forces of the unconscious of immediate needs of self-interest and of violence he says in this sense he goes on we stand naked and exposed in the face of our ever-increasing power, lacking the wherewithal to control it. We have certain superficial mechanisms, but we cannot claim to have a sound ethics, a culture and spirituality genuinely capable of setting limits and teaching clear-minded restraint. And so he uses the term technocratic paradigm. So technocracy, the rule of technology, those who have the technology are coming more and more to rule the planet. And so he says that begins to enumerate so many of the dangers of how we learn to think that walking around in, in the world, not listening to birdsong, not paying attention to whether you're standing on an anthill, not noticing that the linden trees are blooming or whatever, but you're walking around with your little device in your hand, maybe with earphones into that device, so that we are, and we're putting those devices in the hands of our six-month-old. And by the time they're a year old, they're able to swipe and find what they want and follow things around in there. And I mean, I know young people who are literally addicted to their devices, like try to take them away to eat a meal as a family or try to put them aside to go on a vacation and sit in front of the ocean or climb a mountain together. And it's like they scream and carry on. It's similar behavior to going cold turkey off of drugs or cigarettes or whatever. And so his concern is that the paradigm of this technology, and to some extent, some people wanting to claim all we need is technology to mm -hmm. heal the planet. And his point is, we have an entire unconscious inside of all of our body, mind, spirit 
selves that is driven by certain things and technology is not going to heal that. And so to come to having a moral stance and a choiceful way of wanting to interact with the life world in which we live is just a huge important piece that we have to take into consideration. And he says, ecological culture cannot be reduced to a series of urgent and partial responses to the immediate problems of pollution, environmental decay, and depletion of natural resources. There needs to be a distinctive way of looking at things, a way of thinking, policies, an educational program, a lifestyle and a spirituality, which together generate resistance to the assault of the technocratic paradigm. Otherwise, even the best ecological initiatives can find themselves caught up in the same globalized logic. And just that term globalized logic, partly he addresses in here too, the importance of place, the importance of your locale and of being familiar with how to live in that particular place. So modern anthropocentrism, I just, I talked about like with the idea of Vitruvian man, the humanity is the Lord of the household. And he talks instead of the reality of limits that um, we can, we have, we are taking up way too much space on the planet. It's part of the destruction that he talks about in chapter one, the loss of biodiversity, the pollution of the waters, and so on and so forth. But in any case here, he's, let me see if there's any more that I need to say about this. He says um, that technology has an internal logic that completely invades our consciousness and creates its own demands. Those who wield it do so from a position of power that disincludes most people and countries, promoting vaster inequities, and its ongoing development contributes to resource depletion and pollution. Look up Bitcoin factories. And when all of your electricity needs to go off because of blackouts, because of heat waves or snowstorms or something, Bitcoin factories get to keep going. So the need to set limits, seek beauty in other ways, question power, including biotechnology and constant use of communication technologies and replace the deep anthropocentrism of our cultural mindset with the recognition of complete interconnectedness of all things on the planet and in the cosmos. So that's that chapter. Yeah, so the, the Pope, he coins this term integral ecology. And so can you just define that and how does that impact this discussion of climate? Yes, let me read from uh, paragraph 139. This is where he uses the term and sets it forth. When we speak of the quote environment, what we really mean is a relationship existing between nature and the society which lives in it. Nature cannot be regarded as something separate from ourselves or as a mere setting in which we live. We are part of nature, included in it and thus in constant interaction with it. Recognizing the reasons why a given area is polluted requires a study of the workings of society its economy, its behavior patterns, and the ways it grasps reality. Given the scale of change 
it is no longer possible to find a specific discrete answer for each part of the problem. It is essential to seek comprehensive solutions which consider the interactions within natural systems themselves and with social systems. We are faced not with two separate crises, one environmental and the other social, but rather with one complex crisis, which is both social and environmental. Strategies for a solution demand an integrated approach to combating poverty, restoring dignity to the excluded, and at the same time, protecting nature. So we know that in the last number of years, for example, migration of human populations has become a massive reality. Millions moving from out of Syria and out of Turkey after the earthquake and out of the Ukraine because of war and from places in Africa because of, quote, small wars going on in Nigeria and now Sudan and Somalia, so on and so forth. People from Central and South America moving this way, a lot of them a lot of these are climate refugees. There have been a lot of scholars and uh, social observers saying that Syria, the war in Syria, is partly because of climate change there and of what's happening with the, how the government is handling the heat waves that have diminished crops and so on there. And if we don't want to cope with migrants, we have to do something about climate change and how it's impacting, especially the poorer parts of the world where people simply want to feed their families and want to live. So if your listeners have not seen the movie called The Letter, I think you can find it just on it's YouTube. It's on YouTube, yeah. yeah. And it's a like an hour or hour and a half long documentary about the Pope, this Pope, Francis I, sending a letter to a youth representative, to an indigenous leader in the Amazon, to a, a husband and wife pair of scientists, and to a, a poor man in one of the West African countries along the ocean shore, and inviting them to come to Rome to talk about the content of Laudato Si with him and with each other. And it's a very stirring movie. And because it has footage into the lives of each of these people, a young woman uh, from India, a Hindu woman, none of the people the Pope invites are Catholic. So the black man from Africa, is uh, a Muslim. The 15-year-old girl or something like that is a Hindu. The um, married couple are pretty much, you might say, agnostic or atheist scientists. And the indigenous man from the Amazon, a chieftain of his people in the Amazon, has his Amazonian native religion, indigenous religion. That is, is common only to his little area of the Amazon. So you actually learn about the worldviews of these people and how those worldviews impact their 
interest and involvement in ecological change. But what you also see is how integral ecology is wound up with societal realities that are the same but different, you might say, in each of these places. The same in that they are all dreadfully impacted by watching what's happening to the earth in each of these places and what's happening to their societies, what's happening to the children in the societies, what's happening to, I mean, the indigenous man has his life threatened by the corporate thugs who want to mow down the Amazon rainforest. And he's tied to a tree and bullied and beaten and, and left left for dead, but he's not dead. So anyway, I mean, you get the point of the technocratic power that wants to take over the the resources and so on of the planet and how that's being experienced in the lives of all these people. And the young African man watching some of his peers get on these tiny boats and try to make it to the European continent and finding many of them dying in these small boats that are trying to cross open waters and so on. So integral ecology, he talks, let me read you again the subtitles of this chapter, environment, economic, and social ecology. So here he gets really into how economics, the economic factor, and I think it's really helpful to recognize how things have changed down through the longer history. Because we're living in a capitalist society, we tend to think this is the only kind of economy, it's this or communism. And that's far from true because humans have had all different kinds of economic systems over the time. And as somebody who taught business ethics at Metro State College, I have had my students read the changing thinking that's coming about with economics. Capitalism is part of the destruction of the planet because it wants no limits. It doesn't want to see limits happening. And so, and we have to look at the limits. We are up against our limits. And there are new ways of economic thinking that are rising up. And the Pope is really on that and really big on that. Then there's the issue of cultural ecology. The four peoples that receive this letter from the Pope and come to, we see into their lives and then into their travels to Rome and their experience and they go up to Assisi and sort of meet the saint up there. Um, and so, but their culture, that's cultural ecology. How do we maintain the diversity of those two? Um, ecology of daily life. This is where the rubber hits the road for every single one of us. What is the ecology of our daily life? What are our food choices? What are our transportation choices? What, how do we spend our time? How do we interface with our own little bailiwick that we live inside of? The principle of the common good, that's another huge Catholic social teaching that it's not individualism. That is a difficult moral reality. The common good in private property and issues of private property, in issues of the choices we make in our governing and so on and so forth. The principle of the common good, not the good of the oligarchy, of the wealthy, and not the good of those who have the money to pay 
and to change the politics and stuff, but the common good, which now has become also in eco-theology, the good of the commons, earth, air, fire, water, that the good of the commons is the common good, needs to be the common good. And the last one is justice between generations. So bringing in the thought of what about our children? What about our grandchildren? What about our great grands? And so on and so forth. So we are getting lower on time. Do you have a specific question about the next two chapters? I definitely want to focus and say a little bit about each of the last two chapters. Yeah, the next one, I mean, he I'm sure he has ideas about what we can do in the present crisis. Maybe if you want to highlight just a couple of those in chapter five, what will make the most difference in his opinion? Right. And this pope is all about including as many voices as possible at all times that um, if it's going to be integral ecology, the cry of the poor and the cry of the planet, then everybody's voices count, not just, again, back to the great chain of being, to the hierarchy. It's not just the nobility. It's not just the leadership of the church. It's not just the wealthy who get a word about what needs to go on, but it's very much, we need everybody's voices in this. So the subtitles of this chapter are Dialogue on the Environment in the International Community, Dialogue for New National and Local Policies, Dialogue for dialogue and Transparency in Decision-Making. So here's where, again, who gets to make the decisions? Those with the most technocracy, with the most technological power? Or how do we bring as much people, as many people, as much uh, universal voices as possible? Another subtitle is Politics and Economy in Dialogue for Human Fulfillment and Religions in Dialogue with Science. Religions in Dialogue with Science is always a fun topic because our media in this country wants to always put them in opposition. And there has been a lot of movement in the in scholarship, in in universities, and in writings and so on in the last, I would say, 30 years, 40 years, about how there's places for both and in the need for dialogue between the two of them. Ian Barbour, B-A-R-B-O-U-R, is uh, somebody who is a Christian and a scientist, and who has written some several remarkable books on religion and science. So if beyond reading what the Pope has to say, I would say uh, he'd be a great place to go and, and get some things on that. But let me read from the Pope here on politics and, and economy and dialogue for human fulfillment. He says, this is paragraph 189, politics must not be subject to the economy nor should the economy be subject to the dictates of an efficiency-driven paradigm of technocracy. So he's really throwing down the gauntlet there and um, wanting to say, today, in view of the common good, there is urgent need for politics and economics to enter into a frank dialogue in the service of life, especially human life. 
Another writer who has written some remarkable books on this is David Corten, K-O-R-T-E-N. And he has several books on the being in service, the dialogue and changing the paradigm that we have been in for the last 400 years since the scientific revolution and the economic uh, revolution, the capitalist revolution that came in the 1800s. Corton looks at the power of corporations, the rule of corporations, and the alternative paradigm that we need to develop of being in service to life. He says, saving banks at any cost, the Pope says, he's writing this after the crash of 2008, making the public pay the price, foregoing a firm commitment to reviewing and reforming the entire system only reaffirms the absolute power of a financial system, a power which has no future and will only give rise to new crises after a slow, costly, and only apparent recovery. And then he goes on about the financial crisis of 0708. It provided us a chance to develop a new economy, and instead, we've just gone back to putting ourselves back in that financial bubble. So he's really, this is why he's pretty unpopular with some of the Wall Street magnates and so on and so forth. Um, some of the Catholic politicians who are in power with their billions and so on and so forth. He says, productive diversification offers the fullest possibilities to human ingenuity to create and innovate while at the same time protecting the environment and creating more sources of employment. So there's the vision and the potential. The re let's reframe, let's think differently. Let's realize that we are in a period of massive change. And that is why everything feels so chaotic. That is why one of the reasons why there's so much conservatism trying to pretend that we still live in the 1950s that let's backpedal, let's make it all good, let's forget that the, it's scary. The times that we live in right now, it's scary in so many ways. Janelle could go on for the next hour about all of the ways, all of the things that are crashing way ahead of what science even thought was going to crash, when it was going to crash. And so it's not to say that it's not scary, but he is saying, and let me maybe make the transition to, into chapter six, because he's saying this is, chapter six is ecological education and spirituality. We think the stories we want to hold on to, the stories that can enhance our lives are already here for us, including the biblical story, are already here for us to uh, enter fully into, but it takes a conversion of mindset. He talks about the ecological conversion. It takes a, a new lifestyle. And so if we just realize that there are so many writers and change makers right now who are working to change the economic paradigm, and all of this happens somewhat slowly, but it's in progress. It's happening right now. And, and there are people who are purposely trying to live a simpler lifestyle. 
and I mean, all of the things that we talk about, like electric vehicles and solar panels and all of that kind of thing, we know that there's nothing on planet Earth that is going to be perfect. And but and so, yeah, some of the lithium and the precious metals that are going into making of solar panels and so on and so forth, batteries for cars are part also part of the problem but helping us to move toward a better solution. The lifestyles of those of us who live in America, even if we are on more on the working class than on the managerial class, all of our lifestyles in this country have a major impact. Think about if you're having a baby, all of the items that we need these days to make life with a baby. And even the poor people in this country are trying to get the car and need them. We need them. Get car seats and all of the toys, all of the plastic toys, all of the technological toys for kids, all of the things and the way that we eat. So the Pope talks about our obsession with a consumerist lifestyle above all when few people are capable of maintaining it, few people worldwide can only lead to violence and mutual destruction. So he says, no system can completely suppress our openness to what is good, true, and beautiful, or our God-given ability to respond to divine grace at work deep in our hearts. And he talks about social pressure and how much, how much we are affected by constant onslaught of advertising, constantly needing new things. He says, purchasing is always a moral and not simply economic act. Today, in a word, the issue of environmental degradation challenges us to examine our lifestyle. So he says, we need to educate in every means we can. Every educational system, religions, every place that we can, all layers from preschool through college and postgraduate school, educating for the covenant and religions in their bully pulpit, educating for the covenant between humanity and the environment. We have lived inside of a utilitarian mindset with individualism, unlimited progress, competition, consumerism, the unregulated market. These are our stories that we have imbibed. And he says this has to change and um, cultivating new ways of life. Then he starts talking in terms of what it can be. There is a nobility in the duty to care for creation through little daily actions. And it is wonderful how education can bring about real changes in lifestyle. We must not think that these efforts are not going to change the world. They benefit society, even the small acts of love giving dignity to other people. So he compares, and this is a phrase that I think belongs to John Paul II, two popes back, uh, he, who talks about the culture of death versus the culture of life. And we're living in the culture of death. Ecological conversion, he says, I am interested in how a spirituality can motivate us to a more passionate concern for protection of the world a commitment this lofty cannot be sustained by doctrine alone without a spirituality capable of inspiring us, without an interior impulse which encourages, motivates, nourishes, 
and gives meaning to our individual and communal activity. And then he gets into the life of the spirit and how that includes a deep love of other creatures and a deep love of the mountains and forests and oceans and, and talks about how Christ has taken unto himself this material world and now risen is intimately present to each being surrounding it with his affection and penetrating each being with his light. When you expand an understanding of who Christ is, that in the Christian understanding of the second person of the Trinity coming into the planet, taking on human flesh, which is earth flesh, which are the carbon and nitrogen and silica molecules and so on that make up our bodies. And then we say, okay, and Christ died, but rose with a body. He goes to his disciples in Luke chapter, whatever the last chapter of Luke is, goes to the disciples and shows them who he is. And he says, give me something to eat. And because they think he's a ghost. And he says, ghosts don't have bodies. Give me something to eat. And of course, that can also be interpreted as give me, give me my body, these poor people who are my body. Give them something to eat too. But give me because I have a body. I am still, I have taken on the flesh of the material world and it has I have never left it. I am still in this world. The spirit of life is what gives life to the world, says the Pope. It's the spirit in all things. So, I mean, that's just an incredible theological statement. Has never taken himself out of this material world. And therefore, the risen Christ inhabits the entire cosmos. Every fleck of matter is Christic. I'll just do a little paragraph or a little parenthesis here. Buddhism, parts, certain segments of Buddhism says the same thing about the world being completely Buddhist. And Judaism says that the entire world is made up of Torah. And Islam says the entire created creation is from, made from the words of Quran. So pick your religion. It still is saying all of matter is sacred. All of matter is shot through with, with the most intense, marvelous mystery. So how do we live? How do we find joy in serving the creation in this time as it crashes and as we are called to change ourselves, to live as Christians, the Pope is saying. I'll go back to the Pope's language, the, how do we live as Christians in the midst of this? And as a Catholic or the high liturgical churches, Episcopal, Lutheran, Methodist, who use the Eucharist as part of their communion of body and blood of Christ, chapter, I mean, paragraph 236 is this immense reflection on the meaning of Eucharist, of taking into our bodies in an intimate way the depths of a fragment of matter, which is God, which is what you could say we do with every bite that we take. 
So how, what kind of food should we be eating and buying and supporting and so on? So he ends with the whole thing with two prayers that he wrote, a prayer for our earth and a Christian prayer in union with creation. And basically praying that we can change, that we can embrace every poor person and creature, that we journey toward the infinite light. And we thank uh, God for being in this world every day, ourselves, God with us, encourage us in the struggle for justice and peace. So anyway, any last questions or comments or? Yeah, I think the just the final bit personally for you would be, where do you find hope? And yeah, where do you find hope? Partly in working, like uh, Janelle said at the beginning, she and I, work with an organization here called Together Colorado that has several um, committees from healthcare to justice and jails to, to the climate change. And all of the committees of the 220 congregations, Christian and Jewish and Muslim congregations around the state of Colorado, all of those 220 organizations, churches or religious affiliations are doing what they can, having their members address these various issues in our Colorado legislature and helping to try to elect people to national and city groups that are going to care for the common good. And that's just one organization out of millions and millions around the world. There are millions of organizations. Janelle, help me. What's the name of the man who started? 350. Well, Bill, Bill, McKibben. Bill McKibben. Yeah, Bill McKibben has started 350.org and now third act for old people to get involved. But this is a businessman who is trying to turn business green. And he wrote a book about all of the small organizations that he started to hear about when he was going around promoting his book on natural capitalism. And so anyway, and he said there's like millions of these nonprofit organizations that are like Sierra Club and the Nature Conservancy are some of the great big ones, but there's all of these small ones. There is a knowing that we need to change. Part of that knowing shows up as resistance, like, oh my God, no, let's just keep what we have. It's just fine the way it is. Well, it's fine depending on how it serves you if you're in the upper yeah. echelons. But change always comes from a groundswell, from underneath. And yeah. Thomas Berry talks about the dream of the earth. We are of the earth. And how is the earth dreaming through us of the change? Yesterday, in the perspective section, the opinion section of the Denver Post, there was a long article by a Cheyenne chief whose, whose Cheyenne name is Yellowbird, but he's talking about how we need the wisdom of Native Americans and other indigenous peoples who have maintained a knowing of how to interface with the earth. And so the European mindset that came to this country and has had and lived by the domination mindset 
is now being met even in the Denver Post by a Native American, uh, an indigenous person speaking to us in this common kind of way. So, so that's where I have hope, that there are voices, there are movements, there are people who are gardening in their backyards and on their lanais and so on and so forth to begin to do local food and go to farmer's markets and eat less meat at least one day a week, no meat or whatever, going vegan. There's just a lot that's happening. It's not happening much in the corporate world. It's going to need to be the groundswell, and there is a groundswell. Celeste, thank you so much for your time and the education, yes. the passion, the work that you do in the world and specifically there in the beautiful state of Colorado. Hope you're enjoying that. I miss it every day. So if you like this episode, friends, please do us a favor and share it on the interwebs at Brew Theology and at uh, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter and any place where people can find your work, you specifically, are you online? Do you have any handles? I don't. I'm kind it's of- okay. I'm, not I, I'm actually very Luddite, envious. But I'm not a total Luddite, but I'm, yeah, I haven't done much of a presence except Janelle and I do the education subcommittee of the climate committee. We have been putting out a few things, educational materials over the last couple of years. So I have written a little bit for that. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I... As an adjunct teacher at three different schools, occasionally four, I have not made time to do the writing, just keeping up with the daily classwork and that kind of thing. So I was putting my effort into the students in front of me, about 150 students a semester in areas like ethics, business ethics, world religions, and so on and so forth, and bringing strands of this into whatever I taught. So that's kind of where I can send you a lot of syllabi for some of those things. Can send you some book lists, but yeah, I don't have I don't have much of an online presence, I don't think. So well, if anyone would like to reach out to you, is it okay if they reach out to us and we make a connection? Yes. Okay. We can absolutely do that. So if you'd like to talk to Celeste and maybe have her speak on Zoom to a community or just talk to her more about her work, just reach out to us and we'll make a connection for you. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast. If you have any questions, you can email Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. If you want to learn more, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can find us at brewtheology on Facebook and Instagram and brew underscore theology on X. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you next time. Cheers. Thank you.